into this idea of it takes a village, and um, we talked about kind of our responsibility to each other last week. We talked about how um, we are to carry each other's burdens. When things get crazy, we're supposed to do life together. We're supposed to impact our communities together, that we cannot live and exist within the four walls of this church. We have to get out. We have to do more. Uh, we have to involve ourselves in more. We have to get our hands dirty, and it means that we're going to get messy, right? means we get in people's lives. It means you find out stuff about people that you just didn't want to know. And you have to go into houses of people that you're just not, normally not comfortable going into. Or maybe that you just kind of get out of your little holy huddle and try to impact somebody's life that's outside, that feels like an outsider, that feels like church is just something for maybe someone else to go to or someone else can do, but not for them. Remember we looked at uh, Galatians chapter 6 and and we talked about how those who are caught up in sin should be uh, restored gently by others and those who are spiritual. And we talked about how uh, spiritual sometimes we think we are. And then I left you with this thought of uh, you're a bunch of nothings, right? If you showed up to church last week, if you didn't, then you take that and uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? You're a bunch of nothings. Um, and how we all think sometimes that we're a bunch of somethings, but really we're a bunch of nothings. And when we see ourselves like that, then we realize really how much bigger God is and what He wants for our life and, and kind of the surrender that we should have in Him. Now, um, as I started this week, I, I really felt like God was taking this in a one direction, and, and I had worked on this for uh, days and days and days of, of the community. What happens when the community fails? Right? What happens when it all falls apart? And... Uh, and so I had worked through and kind of thought through how I was going to preach that. We were going to look at Exodus chapter 32 in the Mount Sinai incident. You guys know that. When Moses goes up on the mountain and, and he is, quote, long in coming down, right? And, and the Israelite community who just had all these incredible things happen for them, uh, they get tired of waiting on Moses, and so they decide to, to melt down their earrings and their jewelry and, and form it into a calf and, uh, and, and kind of worship this idol that they made uh, and, and with the help of Aaron, and Aaron had some uh, shared responsibility in that. And I was going to talk about how the community fails for a lack of, of patience. Like, right, sometimes we just have to wait for God to move, and we're not good at that, right? I hate waiting. I, I, I despise waiting. If you have Netflix and it takes it a second to load, by the time it's loading up, you're just you're so frustrated, you just want to turn the thing off. And we're like, hang on a second. My kids don't know what it means to go to a the video store and rent a VHS tape. Like, they have no idea what that means. Be kind, rewind is not in their vocabulary, right? They don't get it because they want everything right there. We don't have patience, right? We don't get it. I saw a video, if you haven't seen it online, where a kid has been handed a cassette tape and the dad said, listen to this, and they're like trying to figure out where to put the headphones. They don't understand it. And I'm like, oh man, I'm so old, right? They don't understand patience. They don't get that you have to wait sometimes for that. Sometimes our community fails because of a lack of patience. And then we were going to go over to Numbers chapter 13. And we were going to look at how the spies, when they came back from kind of checking out the promised land, remember that? And they came back to the community who was there wait, waiting to go across the river. And, and Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can do this. And everybody else said, no, we can't. They're too big, right? They're too strong or too powerful. The, the land's too vast. We cannot take it. We cannot do this. And the whole community of Israel kind of rallied behind that thought and said, why did you bring us out here in the middle of the desert to die? We should have been in Egypt and died there. We can't do this. And so God said, okay, that means everybody here is going to have to die before we move forward.
fails sometimes because of a lack of faith. Now, we don't believe that God can do incredible... We, can't, we don't believe that God can do immeasurably more, right? And then we we're going to finally look at Joshua chapter 7, where, uh, where they had finally begun to go in and take some of the stuff and take over some of the towns, and a guy named Achan kind of grabbed some stuff and held on to it, right? He put it underneath his tent, and stuff that was supposed to be destroyed. And, and just like everything else that we do in our life that we think when we hide it, we try to hide it under our tent, God knows it's there. And, uh, and so the, the kind of the leadership comes to him and finds it and, and kills not just him but his whole family and all their stuff, like burns it all. And, uh, and we, we were going to talk about how community fails because of a lack of obedience, lack of patience, lack of faith, and lack of obedience. Man, that would have been a good message, wouldn't it? I'm not talking about that this morning. Like I was all ready. I had it all. I had my three points and a poem and a joke. Y'all remember Craig Jenkins? That was his. That was his model for for uh, his sermons every Sunday. I love Craig, and I I talked to him on a normal basis. And he, when we first came here, Jess and I, we were young and dumb. I was dumb. She was young, and uh, and so we we came and and every Sunday, if you were here when Craig was here, he would start off with like a little joke. And then he'd tell his three points, and he would end with a poem every single Sunday. And it came a little running joke between me and him and his sweater vests, and it was great. I love Craig. And so uh, I had all that. I had my three points. I had it all going out, and God said, no, let's not do that. Because honestly, if I'm honest with you guys, I've been a little, I've been a little disappointed, okay? If I can be transparent with you. Uh, we've we've kind of launched this Takes a Village uh, sermon series, and then... Uh, alongside of that on Sunday night we've been talking about our community groups and if you haven't been here on Sunday night then you don't know what a community group is essentially we are trying to get out into our community this is our outreach and I know when I say that a lot of people kind of check out they go no I'm not going to do I don't do outreach I don't really like that but it's really just about being a servant and being involved in people's lives and kind of reaching our little corner of uh, the neighborhood that we live in and in, in, in Warren and so um, I just kind of started thinking to myself, okay, God, what if this all falls apart? There's not been a lot of people showing up for this. There's not been a lot of people who've just said, yeah, I want to be a part of that. I want to, I want to get out and I want to tell my neighbors and, and serve and love on people in my community. What happens if this all just falls? What happens if this all just kind of tanks? And as I was praying really on Thursday, uh, God just said, don't, don't preach community failing because I never fail. And I was like, oh, okay, well, what do you want me to preach, right? So I started really praying. I spent a lot of time in prayer on Thursday, and, and, and God just said, I want you to preach about what's going to happen when the community is fulfilled. Let's talk about community fulfilled, not community failing, because God doesn't ever fail. We're going to put all of our effort into what I feel like he's telling us to do, and he's going to work out the details to all of that. If you come and be a part of it, then guess what? You get to be blessed. If you say, no, I'm not going to be a part of it, then you're missing out. That's your fault, not mine right and so i say to you you need to be involved and you need to be a part of it because god's involved and god's a part of it and we are involved in what he's involved in then things always always come to fulfillment they never fail and so as i was praying through i was like okay god let's do this how does the how does the community fulfilled look like it was like it was like just all this came together and i'm going to say this and everybody's going to go oh my gosh where's the preacher going this morning revelation chapter seven Go with me. Revelation. This is community fulfilled because it looks a lot like heaven. 
And I know when I say the words Revelation, a lot of you go, oh, this is scary. I don't really know this book. We don't really preach out of this book very often. We don't talk about this book. Some of you start reading it, and you, you just stop because it kind of freaks you out. And you don't know where to go next, right? That's okay. This morning, we're not going to go super deep, okay? We're going to go about ankle deep if we can. We're going to go ankle deep in Revelation. This incredible book that you don't need to be afraid of, number one, that you need to do some studying on, some informed studying on. And I promise you, when you get to the end of it, you're going to go, well, this is incredible. This is the story of how we win. And see, we have this misconception about Revelation, and, and I, I'm just, this is not even in my notes. This is, this is free, okay? We have this misconception that there's this major battle that happens in, in heaven. When, when Jesus comes back and he's fighting what, what is the Antichrist is Satan, and we have, we, have, we have this vision in our head, and it's taken care of in one verse in, in Revelation. It just says, and Jesus came and cast the devil and his followers into the lake of fire, period. End of story. There's not a big major battle. There's a lot of buildup, and then Jesus shows up and says, this is done. And he puts an end to it. Like he walks in like grandma did in church when she would pinch you on the side and say, quit talking, this is done. And you stopped, right? And so Jesus just walks in and he's like, it's over with. And we're like, that, that's it. And he says, yeah, that's it because I'm still in control. And so we read this book of Revelation with such hesitancy and such like, oh, I don't know how it's going to play out. This morning, let me just give you a little bit of context and we're going to work our ways through the first couple of chapters, kind of give you a little bit of what's going on here, and then we're going to kind of camp out in chapter 7. Okay, John wrote the, the book of Revelation. And this is really, uh, if, you, if you are from a South uh, culture, you say Walmarts, and you're going to carry somebody somewhere. Uh, this is not Revelations, it's Revelation. It's one continual thought, okay? It's not an S on the end of that word. And this is his thought. Now, John was the, the, the same John who wrote the book, the Gospel of John. Okay, If you read the Gospels, the Gospel of John reads completely different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, he has kind of his own perception, his own uh, way of seeing things, and his own way of recording things, which is incredibly creative. I love reading uh, the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Makes sense, because it's all named after him. All right? And he wrote Revelation. He, uh, his is the same dis disciple that was the son of Zebedee. Remember James and John, the brothers? This is that guy. This is the one who, in, in his book, Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, right? He writes that about himself. Jesus, I was Jesus' favorite, right? Who would not write that, right? I mean, if you're writing the Gospel, you're going to write, I was Jesus' favorite, okay? If you look through the three guys that Jesus hung out with the most of his 12 were Peter, James, and John. He had a special relationship with Jesus. And he, he has this vision, okay? And he's probably about 90 years old. He's the last living disciple, the original living disciple. All the rest had been martyred, which to them was a cause of glory and not a bad thing. It was a good thing because of their faith. They had been killed because of it. And John is the last one still alive. Um, he is, uh, there's legend of, it's not really... Um, not in the scripture so we can't say it's true but there's legend that john had been tried to be boiled alive and he came out of the oil and was not hurt at all the oil didn't touch his skin uh, and so the only way that they could kind of shut him up is they put him on this island of patmos and so they exiled him this as almost solitary confinement if you would on this island by himself and when he's on this island he has a vision that he immediately begins to record for us now this book of revelation is john's vision 
of what God revealed to him about what's going to happen at the end. Now, what's interesting about this is that it was immediately accepted as sacred scripture. There was never a point where they went, uh, I don't know if that's how it happened. People saw this, they read this, they went, this is truth. And so it was immediately adopted in, probably written around 90, 95 A.D. Uh, Paul eventually gets off the island because we know he dies in Ephesus, I believe, and uh, a few years later, and so we know that this is, uh, this is not just his final thoughts. But you've got to remember, when you read through Revelation, Paul is, or John is describing something that he's never seen before. He's trying to use his own words to describe something that, that doesn't even make sense to him. So he'll, if you read through, he'll say, it looked like this, or it had a face like, I mean, it had a face like this, but it was kind of covered in this, and it had all these things. He's trying to explain something that he's never even seen, something that he's, is, is beyond his vocabulary. But how he explains it is incredibly important because there's lots of symbolism, there's lots of things that are in there that's, that's of super high importance. And so, you start at the beginning of Revelation, you kind of go through chapters 2 and 3, and you hear these kind of letters to the churches, and, and there's lots of things about that we're not going to get into, and all these warnings that come along with that. Chapters 4 and 5, my two favorite chapters, probably out of all of Scripture, is the throne room of heaven and John's vision of God sitting on his throne with an emerald rainbow encircling him and his breastplate of righteousness and all this kind of stuff that's happening there. Remember we've talked about before, at his feet there was what looked like a sea of glass. And, and he describes how with peals of thunder and lightning that the God on his throne is just in all power, in all righteousness, in all holiness. He is setting and everything in heaven is surrounding him because he is the focus of heaven. And then verse at the end of really chapter 5, um, we see kind of this um, moment where God speaks out and has this scroll in his hand. Now what, what the scroll is is not important, but what is, is important is who can open the scroll, right? There's a scroll that has seven seals on it. And he, he asks this question to all of heaven, who can open the scroll? And, and John says that they looked around and no one was worthy to open the scroll or take it from his hand. And, and after a moment of just, he says, John just, uh, just weeps. This moment of despair, of, of just everything falling apart because no one could do it. He says he turns and he looks and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He sees Jesus. And he says he is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seal. And then once he, Jesus comes on the scene and he starts to pop the seals, every time a seal is broken, something happens in heaven. If you've read through the first few chapters of Revelation, you know this. This is where the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we, we say stuff like that and everybody goes, what in the world, okay? There's the four horsemen that come out. There's, there's on another seal, there's, a, there's the martyrs who are crying out, how much longer do we have to wait, Right? And then another one, there's an earthquake, and it says that the, that the sun is blotted out and the stars fall from heaven. There's this incredible symbolism through all this. And then he goes all the way through the sixth seal, and then before he, he breaks the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Can you imagine? All the, all the majesty and all the worship and all the things that are happening in heaven and Jesus shows up and all the things that are going on around that and then it's just dead quiet for 30 minutes. And Jesus
Jesus opens the last seal that kind of signifies the next transition into a lot of things that are happening. Literally, chaos ensues after the seventh seal is broken. But in between that sixth seal and the seventh seal, we see and we get to read something incredible. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is community fulfilled. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now listen, this is not a, uh, a message on pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation dispensationalism or all this kind of all-millennialists and all that kind of stuff. All those uh, exegesis, all those words are church words that people throw around to make themselves sound smart, okay? Just like I did. I can't spell dispensationalism if I had to. But we all say those kind of things and everybody who doesn't understand what revelate, they go, I, I just check out, okay? That's not what this is about. But if you're asking your preacher where he thinks the rapture happens, this is it, okay? And so here we read that there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne, okay? This is where I believe we are called home. And so there's five things that I want to pull out from this one little passage of Scripture. Five things that we're going to look at that, that I honestly, I put on the screen just really my straight-up notes of how I wrote them down as I prayed through this on Thursday afternoon. Here we go. Number one, I want you to notice that out of nowhere, this great number of people, they all show up. Now, here's what I'm going to say. These are not angels. Some people say, well, this must be angels. No, it's not angels. Because every time you read in Scripture where angels show up, it says they're angels. And this, this doesn't say a great number, multitude of angels showed up. It says a great number of people showed up. Up. And, and my question as I, as I started kind of writing all this out was, why, why is it an innumerable amount? Why is this a multitude that no one could, could number? Because if you read through Scripture, numbers are important, right? We have all kinds of number references in Scripture. Three. Number three is always representative of the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we have numbers like number seven, which is in, in symbolic nature is completeness and perfection. Anytime uh, somebody says something about, I've done this seven times, they're trying to say, I've done this as perfect as I can. Remember the, the guys who came up to Jesus saying, how many times should we forgive our neighbors up to seven times completely? And Jesus says, no, I'll say you 70 times seven, which is to them, that's like infinity, right? And so this idea of seven is, is completion and whole and perfect. There's numbers like 40. Now remember 40? We think about 40 with significance to the ark. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Uh, Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, fasting for 40 days before he started his earthly ministry. Um, the, well, we talked, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years. Uh, if you remember the Old Testament story of David and Goliath, Goliath stood in defiance to the army of Israel for 40 days. It's an important number. There's numbers like... Uh, 666, if you read through Revelation. There's numbers like um, 70, 
that are significant. Listen, even when, remember when Peter went fishing after Jesus had been crucified and in the tomb and they, they, were, they were lost, they didn't know what to do, and he went fishing and he caught, and the Bible says that he caught 153 fish. That was a very specific number, right? So when we get to this point in Revelation, it says there's just so many people we can't even count on. Why did it not have a number? Because my belief is that this is the point where all generations of all believers show up in heaven together. You can't count that many people. This is people from, from all the way back from when John was alive all the way up to us right now. This is the raptured group of believers. This is the church. And it points back to what John said in chapter four, John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, In my Father's house there are many rooms. It's Jesus talking. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be with me where I am. This is that moment, church. When we read this in Revelation, that there's this great multitude that shows up in heaven, that's our rapture moment. That's the moment where everything that we do here on earth comes to fruition and we go, okay, this is the whole point of everything. This is when I get to stand in the throne room with Jesus, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, this is community fulfilled. This is where we look around and we say, this is what life was really all about. When we see this idea that every nation, tribe, people, and language is there, that there's all these number of people, and number two, that every tribe, nation, people, and language are there, then, then we have to recognize that this is truly what real community looks like. The pulpit commentary, I think I put it up on the screen, says this. This is a four-fold classification that continually reoccurs in Revelation. It includes all the bases of classification of mankind, all the circumstances which separate men, and all the barriers which were overthrown by the redeeming work of Christ. I love that commentary. I love how it says that this is really, this is community spot on, that, that all classifications of mankind, rich, poor, black, white, healthy, sick, the worst of society and the best of the Baptists, all of us are there. All circumstances that separate us are gone. There's lots of things that separate us, right? Obviously, there's physical separation. There's continental separation of believers, right? We get that. But then I also have to believe that there's things that separate us from each other, even in this own room. That something has happened that, that you don't want much to do with somebody else in here. It says that all those things are gone. Grudges disappear. Resentment falls away. Bitterness and envy and hatred are gone in heaven. This kind of goes hand in hand with our community groups, right? We've been talking about these things on Sunday nights where I believe that wholeheartedly some of you are going to say, I'm not going to be involved in outreach because I don't want to go to church with this person. I will not invite them to be a part of Emmanuel Church. You have this idea that there has to be separation 
that, that everything inside you, listen, I don't know, sometimes that's a legitimate excuse. Maybe they've done something to you or to your marriage or to your children. And you have this, you have this beef with somebody and you're just like, I just don't want to be around them. I want to be separated from them. I'm not going to invite them. How, how could I ever invite them to church with me? Sometimes it's stuff that you've been hanging on to for years and years and years. That bitterness and resentment have, have kind of been weighing you down. You've been carrying around for so long that you know that you were mad at them for something, but you really don't even remember what it was that started it all in the beginning. And listen, God, it's crossed over to just being silly. It's just crossed over to being stupid. Listen, you did something when we were younger, when we were in our 20s, and I'm holding a grudge against you now, and I'm 50 years old. That's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. It, it's, it's this separation. Guess what? When we get to heaven, all that stuff is gone. All that stuff is out of the way. And then that commentary says it's how, tells us how it's all accomplished. By the redeeming work of Christ. Right? That last little line. All this stuff falls away. Not because we're good people. Not because of some consciousness that we attain but only because of the redeeming work of Christ. Listen, church, I'm just going to say this. If you don't like people that don't look like you or don't act like you or don't behave like you or don't parent like you or don't speak like you, if you don't like people, then you're going to hate heaven. You're going to hate it. You're going to hate every single second of it. Because when it says that all people of all tribes, of all nations, of all languages are going to be there, that means that they're all going to be there. We've been talking about on Wednesday night during our adult Bible study about how we have this box that we like to put Jesus in, right? This little imaginary box that we, we say this is what he must look like and this is what he must act like. And he's got white skin and blonde hair and super blue eyes. And when he looks up to heaven, there's a light that shines on him because that's what every picture in the old part of the church looks like, right? Guess what? That's not what Jesus looks like. He was a Jew. He was olive skin, probably dark hair. He's probably a short little guy who was stocky and probably a little muscular because he was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. And he was around people who spoke multiple different languages. He was around Greeks. And he was around Jews. He was around people who were, who were, in their eyes, the worthless people, the Samaritans. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. The Bible says that a tax collector is worse than a sinner. And we sit back and we go, we don't want to invite those kind of people to our church. And it doesn't make any sense. Because it's completely not biblical. Some of you are not going to be involved because you can't handle it handle this every tribe, people, nation, and language. But the reality is, when we get to heaven, when it's fulfilled, that's exactly what it's going to be. Look at the third thing. Who are they standing in front of? Whom are they standing in front of? It says this, after I looked, before me was a great multitude, no one could count, from the tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. We are not there for any other reason. I've said it. You've heard it said a thousand times. When I get to heaven, I can't wait to see so-and-so. I can't wait to see a grandparent or a friend or maybe a spouse who's died early. Or, or you got all these people that you want to see. You may want to see Peter. You want to hang out with Disciple John. You want to see the streets of gold, right? We all want to see that stuff. But guess what our focus is going to be? None of them. 
our focus in heaven is going to be God the Father and Jesus beside him. That's what we're all there to do. We're all there to be totally and wholly focused on him. Does that mean we're not going to see that stuff? No, that means we're going to get to see all and experience all that, but it's not going to be our focus. The first thing you do when you get to heaven is not going to be when to look up your great-great-grandpa. The first thing you want to do when you get to heaven is see Jesus. That's what it's all about. And if, you're, if your motivating factor for heaven is not Christ, then you're motivated for the wrong reasons. If your motivating factor in heaven is that there's no more pain, there's no more guilt, there's no more shame, that he's going to wipe every tear from our eye, which happens later in chapter 7, that's all stated and said for us. If that's the only reason why you want to go to heaven, then you've got the wrong reason. The whole point and the whole focus of heaven is God sitting on his throne and Christ standing beside him. Just a side note, if that's our focus in heaven, shouldn't it be our focus now? If that's our focus in heaven, wouldn't it be really good practice to let that be our focus now? That life's not about you, or about your wants and desires and dreams and aspirations and goals, but it's about His wants and desires and dreams and aspirations and goals for your life. Wouldn't that be, be great? our focus now, if we can get focused now, so we get to heaven, we're like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to focus. Look at the next thing. Notice what they're wearing and what they're holding. This is kind of interesting. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Now, these are symbolic statements, obviously. I think that probably do have white robes on and palm branches in our hand, but it means something more than that. The white robe is significant in their culture because it's what you wore after baptism, okay? So when someone would get baptized in, uh, in the time that John is writing all this down, uh, they would enter the water with a dark black robe on, very symbolic of the sin that we carried around and, the, and how, how it was just kind of just this dark cloud on our life, and they would take that robe off and they'd be baptized and, and very symbolically wash their sin away, right? Symbolic um, kind of picture of, of our cleansing that we have through what Jesus did on the cross and, and how we're cleansed from that. Uh, you even hear some pastors say when they're baptizing people, I don't say it, when they, when they baptize, they're saying, you know, dead to an old way of life, raised in newness of Christ. You've heard that before? That's, that's just a, another layer of that symbolism. When they would get baptized, they'd come up out of the water and someone would be standing there holding a white robe to symbolize the purity of their spirit, that they have been cleansed from all the stuff before. And they'd put that white robe on and they'd go and they'd eat the Lord's Supper right after that. And all the believers would gather together and eat the Lord's Supper. This incredible symbolism that here the people in heaven are all wearing white robes. Why? Because they are all saved individuals. They have all been cleansed of their sin and the stain of their sin. And they're standing there in newness because of, of what Jesus did on the cross. And they're holding something. They're holding palm branches. Now, there's a double meaning for this when John wrote it down because I think it's important to see both sides of it. In, in Greek culture, a palm branch was a symbol of victory. And so when he wrote this and the Greeks read it, they went, oh, they're holding palm branches because they have been victorious. They have won. They, they've, they've overcome the enemy. To Jews, it meant something a little bit different. The palm branch was very closely tied to what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, if you read your Old Testament. 
Feast of Tabernacles was a harvest feast that the Jews celebrated every year. Um, they, would, they would come together, and, and when the sowing time was over, they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, signifying the harvest. That we've been able to, to, to begin the process of the harvest, or that we've been able to already gather the harvest. And so when we see these two pictures side by side, the, 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 the Greeks' version of victory, yes, we are holding palm branches in victory over death. And we are holding palm branches on the Jewish side of that because we have been harvested. We have been brought together. That we have been pulled into one and that Christ has, has done His complete work in our life and now we are standing with Him forever. Isn't that incredible? That we're together with Him. Listen, that's, that's us. This is again proof upon proof that this is the church standing before God the Lamb. Look at this last thing I've got on here. Revelation chapter 7 verse 10. Uh, notice what they say. And they cried out in a loud voice. This is all the people who are there in their white robes and their palm branches. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is an incredible proclamation message in heaven that we are all standing up there saying that salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I wrote down in my notes, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all get to heaven, when we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout to victory, right? Hello? That's exactly what we're going to do. We're standing before God the Father and we're going to say, it's because of you. It's all because of you. Salvation belongs to you. You are the reason that we are here. You are the reason why, why I am able to be in this moment. This is the same message that we should be proclaiming on earth. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. That's all we have to say. Some of you say, I can't be involved in this community group. I can't do this because I don't, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what we're going to do. Listen, this is, here's, we're just divided the town. We're divided the town into nine different groups from every different area of town. You come, you be involved in whatever group you want to be involved in. You say, I'm going to go and I'm going to love on this community. We're going to do things like um, prayer walk. It's easy. But we're going to intentionally do it. We're going, to, um, we're going to provide Thanksgiving meals for some families within our community groups. We're going to clean up some yards within our community groups. And you know what we're doing? The whole time we're doing all that, we are proclaiming salvation belongs to our God. We're going to have conversations with people, very relaxed, very non-invasive, very easy. Hey, why are y'all doing this? Well, it's because we at Emmanuel Church love and care about you people. I want you to know that we want you to be a part of us and we want to be a part of your life and we'd love to have you come and worship with us but most of all we just want you to know that Jesus loves you that everything in life revolves around what God has for us no 12 step program no 15 different Bible verses memorized just you being a servant and loving people in your community that's what community groups are about and we say, we say all those things consistently all the time and all we're really saying is salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. That's, that's the message that we sing in heaven, and that's the message that we should be singing right here. 
So notice the response. We have all this, the great number of people, all these kind of things that are happening. Uh, and then notice heaven's response, okay? When the community of believers, when the community is fulfilled in heaven, the response of heaven is incredible. Verse 11. All the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, notice that the angels, it tells us that that's not who we were talking about earlier, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, which means let it be. Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. When the community of believers come together and worship in the way that they're supposed to worship, and they fall down and they sing out, salvation belongs to God, all of heaven comes together and says, Amen, let it be that all wisdom and praise and glory and thanks and honor and power and strength belong to God and God alone, Amen. Isn't that awesome? That when we come together as the community of believers and we worship God with one voice and one heart and one accord, all of heaven shouts out, let's do this. That's awesome. And we sit around and go, I don't know the words of this song, so I'm just going to allow them. And we sing powerful worship songs and we don't even really connect to the words. But when we do, all of heaven has a response to that has a response and falls down in front of God and says, all these things are, are due you. This is, is, this is incredible. This is a sevenfold praise to God. Remember, we just got through talking about how the number seven is significant. These are seven things. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength. He is complete and perfect in all seven of those areas. Isn't that awesome? That God who sits on the throne is complete in power. That he is complete in praise. That he is complete in glory and wisdom and glory and honor and thanks. He is, he is all that at all times. And all of heaven just continues to, to just proclaim that message that he is perfect. And he is complete in all seven of those areas. And I know what you're saying. Matt, I get it. Like, dude, this, is, this has been great. This, I, I love this picture of what all is going to happen in heaven. I love the fulfillment thought when it comes to heaven, but that doesn't tell us anything about here. That's all going to happen up there. I'm saved. I get to be a part of that. I'm going to have my white robe on. I'm going to be waving my palm branch. You know what I'm saying? But what about here? How do we get from here to there? It doesn't tell us how it's going to happen. And I say, yeah, it does. Revelation chapter 5. Go back two chapters. Revelation chapter 5. Remember when I was talking about how John saw the lamb who had looked like he had been slain and he could take the scroll from the right hand of God? Remember that incredible exchange between God the Father and God the Son? Chapter 5, verse 9. This is when, they, when Jesus took that scroll. It says, They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That sound familiar? You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. You want to know Jesus' plan for community? Jesus is the plan for community. You want to know how this is all going to happen? Jesus is how this is all going to happen. There's no 12-step process. There's no do this before you do this, before you do this. We just say, listen, Jesus, 
however you're going to accomplish it, then we want to be a part of that because you are our plan. You are the only thing that we're going to chase after. You are the only thing that we're going to communicate. It's not about Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's not about our staff or our deacons or our small groups or, or anything else that happens here. It's not about our youth ministry or our children's ministry. We're out in the community because it's all about Him. And there's, there's no other focus. There's no other plan. It's G Jesus is the plan. And that's so great that we get to look at this and just say, this is, this is for Him to accomplish. How's He going to do it? It says this. You made them into a kingdom of priests. How many of you leave church on Sunday morning, kind of feel like a priest? Kind of walk home, you kind of start blessing people in Piggly Wiggly, right? Or Mad Butcher, whatever it's called. I got blessed by a nun when I worked at Walmart. It's the greatest day of my life. I walked in, she needed help with something, and she was like full habit nun. And I had my name tag on that said Matt. Uh, and I think I had one one time that said Cat Daddy. I couldn't wear that anymore. So it said Matt. True story. I'm sorry. Um, and she, I took her over to whatever it was and, and told her, this is it. You know, this is what you're looking for. And she looked at me. She looked at me. And she went, bless you, Matthew. And I went, oh, right? Like, I thought, this is it. This is, Jesus is coming back. I just got blessed. Right? That, and I, it was just this incredible. Do you ever do that? You ever leave church feeling very priestly? Like you walk around and bless people? Bless you. Deli person for slicing that cheese. And your tasty fried chicken. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't feel like a kingdom of priests. We don't feel like that we are God's instrument to proclaim His message. That's what a priest is priest was God's instrument to proclaim God's message. We don't feel like that. But it says because Jesus was able to do all those things, because he was able to take the scroll because of the blood that he shared, because of the redemption that we have in him, that he makes us a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Listen, church, this is, this is all of us to reach all of them. It's all of us working together to reach all of them. And I hate that language, and I know even I put it on the screen this morning, I thought, I don't like that us and them language. This is we who are Christ followers to reach out to a community who need Christ. This is all of us to reach all of them. Because of what Jesus did, because of him. Now, Jesus takes the throne, takes the scroll from God on the throne. They cry out, worthy. To take, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because of all the things that you've done, because you've made us a kingdom of priests. And then all of heaven again has a response. Chapter 5, verse 12. In a loud voice they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Sound familiar? Almost word for word what happens in Revelation chapter 7. Why? Why? The All of heaven says, 
Jesus, you are the plan. You can do this. And says, you are to receive all the glory and wisdom and power and strength and, and all that stuff because of who you are. And then we read a couple of verses later, he does it. All of heaven says, you can do this. And then a few chapters later, they go, look what you just did. All of heaven says, we believe that Jesus is the only one that can do this. He's the only one that can take the scroll. He's the only one that can open the seals. He's the only one who can call us all home. And then two chapters later, he calls us home. And all of heaven goes, we knew you could do it. We knew you could do it. And we sit around going, I don't know how Jesus is going to work this thing out. hesitation with no surprise all of a sudden there they are everything's complete everything is made whole and perfect and who he is listen church and I'm done this is where we leave it one plan one avenue to reach our community one way that we're going to impact people with the truth Jesus and I know that sounds very preacher to say but really it is it's not complicated we complicate things we stand around and go well, I don't know if I know enough of my Bible verses to share Jesus with someone I don't know if I know all the Old Testament prophets in order by name I don't know if I remember all the miracles of Jesus. I don't remember if I remember all the things that Paul said in his letters. I, I really can't point anybody to Christ because I don't know enough. Here's what you know, church. You know what he did in your life. You know how he's real to you. And that's all it really takes. I think people respond to honesty and transparency I think people respond to people just saying listen I'm not perfect I don't live a perfect life I don't have all the answers I don't even know what I'm doing sometimes but I, you know what I know that Jesus came and he died for me and he, he loves me and he has this incredible life that he has planned out for me and sometimes I do it sometimes I live it and sometimes I, sometimes I don't sometimes I'm an idiot and I miss it but I know this for sure. I know at some point, He's going to call me home. And I'm going to get to stand in heaven with a number of people that cannot even be counted. All believers who have trusted Him. And man, I, I think it's probably the best decision you can ever make in your whole life. I just wish that you would come to the knowledge of who Jesus is and what He did for you. How the cross changed everything. And because He came back to life, He's going to call us home with Him forever in heaven. That's all it is. How hard is that? There's one plan. Jesus. There's one conversation. All goes back to Jesus. This is what He did in my life. I was, I was kind of an idiot. I still kind of am sometimes, but I, was, I made a lot of bad decisions. I came to a point in my life and I just gave it over to Him. And I've been, living, I've been trying to live for Him every day. 
different. Things have changed. I can't do life the same way now. I'm accountable. Is that about you? Is that story about you? It's about him. All things. Community groups, worship, children's ministry, student ministry, adult ministry, all of it. All has one focus. It's the same focus that's in heaven. So my question to you this morning, church, is are you focused? Are you focused on what matters most? Are you going to be a part of something that helps focus other people? Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.